standing as we pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, now and fill this place with your presence, Lord. Um, I can't think of a more appropriate uh, few lines to have just sung before the preaching of this message, Lord. Dispel uh, the gloom, dispel the sadness that so many of us have experienced, Lord, in the midst of uh, the changes in our world right now. Help us to live in the reality of the resurrection. And, Lord, I pray that you would grant me, the preacher of your word, the ability to proclaim that good news and for all of us to receive that good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, that's a great new song, Jim. <laughs> uh, newer to me than I like to admit. <laughs> it is a great song, a perfect song. Uh, today is the second Sunday of Easter. Traditionally, this is called Low Sunday. I'm not really sure why that is. I think it's because uh, so many people are exhausted from Holy Week and then the Easter Vigil and all that kind of stuff that uh, maybe they are laying low the week after Easter, but I don't know why it gets called that. It's really still a part of of the great celebration of Easter. And I want to remind everyone this morning that we need to keep that celebration going. So no fasting allowed. If you have to be told that, hey, Zeus, no fasting for the next 50 days. Uh, for the great 50 days of Easter, which began this past Sunday, we glory in Christ's victory over the power of death, over the power of sin, and over the power of hell through that triumphant resurrection event that happened. It is an event that happened in space and time, and the ripple effects of that glorious resurrection continue to roll out even to this very day and will continue through all eternity. So here we go. Alleluia, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, alleluia. And I think it's particularly important uh, for us to be uh, reminded to continue the celebration at this time because I have had many conversations recently with followers of the risen Jesus who, uh, instead of expressing joy and celebration, express a sense of dread and of gloom. And I don't know, maybe you've had those conversations as well. So many have expressed that they feel an oppressive spiritual darkness weighing down on them. Now, I'm not big on going to the subjective, but uh, I do know that it exists, and feelings do happen to people. So uh, occasionally they happen to me. Uh, every now and then, uh, live long and prosper. Uh, <laughs> But seriously, I do think there is that subjective experience of, of spiritual darkness just weighing down on people. And I think for most of us, the reason for this sense of darkness arises from events around the world and here at home around the world. We see violent attacks against fellow followers of Jesus Christ on the rise. And just this past Easter Sunday in Lahore, Pakistan, at a children's park, Christians were targeted for death by the Taliban, and there was a bomb that was exploded, and, uh, and it didn't just kill Christians, it killed Muslims who were there as well, but the Taliban issues, issued a statement and said, we are here to kill Christians on the day, they specifically said, on the day of their celebration. And that just weighs our heart down with grief, and that grief is amplified when our own, our own government seems incapable of acknowledging that it was because that they were Christians that they were targeted, and so we feel somehow that the plight of believers around the world is being ignored. But I think that perhaps that sense of angst arises for most of us from what we are experiencing much closer to home. 
we have seen the millennial generation, and based on Pew Research, we know this is a fact. Those millennials born after 1985 who grew up in our churches and went to our youth groups, they have abandoned their faith and denied their Lord in droves. And we've seen the ballooning of the social demographic called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who express no religious conviction. And in our own country, there has been a moral revolution so swift, so all-pervasive and complete that Bible-believing Christians find themselves on the margins of a society that literally views traditional Christian beliefs and practice, according to a recent Barna study, those traditional Christian beliefs and practices are viewed by most Americans as being a form of religious extremism. Think about it. Most Americans, 79% of Americans, now think that for someone to share their faith in Jesus Christ with the desire of seeing that person coming to a similar faith in Christ, 79% of Americans see that as a form of religious extremism indistinguishable from the activities of the Taliban, which is bizarre. How did we get here? So we find ourselves in our own country in this strange situation in which, the, which Catholic nuns have gone all the way to the Supreme Court uh, because the state is compelling them to act contrary to their Christian conscience and provide abortion coverage and coverage for possibly abortion-inducing forms of birth control. And if the court's decision is tied four to four, which now seems likely, the lower court ruling will stand and the little sisters of the poor will be fined for their noncompliance with the Affordable Health Care Act. And when they cannot pay, when they cannot pay the fine, we will be living in a country that incarcerates Christians because of acting on their convictions. The little sisters of the poor will go to jail. That's crazy. And with these and other trends, so many of us feel pessimistic and spiritually oppressed and anxious about the future. And that's why I am so glad that by God's good providence, this passage from Revelation is assigned to be read in the lectionary in the second Sunday of Easter in the year C of the three-year cycle that we're in. And I want us to see just how relevant this passage is for those of us who feel downcast by where the church in the secular West in particular finds itself today. I want you to hear good news in this passage. But in order for us to do this, I have to lay the, the groundwork. I have to give us the context in which these words from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, and you have it there in your pew Bible if you would like to turn to it and read along. <clears throat> I want you, you need to hear the context in which this passage is written. Revelation is written to churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, we don't call it Asia Minor anymore. That was the Roman designation. We call it Turkey today, the modern-day country of Turkey. And it was written around the year 95 A.D. So, Jesus is raised from the dead sometime, at, you know, in April of 33 A.D. So, just a few short decades later, short decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these words are being written to the church. Because far from experiencing resurrection victory, the church in 95 AD was undergoing a time of intense, intense persecution, where many, hundreds, maybe even thousands of believers were being killed because of their dedication and devotion to Jesus Christ. 
Where did that persecution come from? Well, that persecution arose from the church's response to the emperor Domitian's. You didn't know you were going to get a history lesson, but you are. I love me some history. The, the church's response to the emperor Domitian's demand that the emperor, that he be worshipped as a god in his own lifetime. And we know from Roman sources that he demanded to be addressed as our Lord and God, Domitian. Dominus et Deus, Domitian. But in spite of as crazy as that sounds, this really isn't an act of insanity. Rather, listen, Domitian's move was a calculated political move. One commentator puts it this way. Tune in a little bit here. We, we need to hear what he says. By the time of the revelation, Caesar worship was the one religion which covered the entire Roman Empire. Its essence was that the reigning Roman emperor, as embodying the spirit of Rome, was divine. Once a year, everyone in the empire had to appear before a magistrate to burn a pinch of incense to the godhead of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And after he had done that, a man might go away and worship any god or goddess he liked, so long as that worship did not infringe decency and good order. But he must go through this ceremony in which he acknowledged the emperor's divinity. The reason was simple. Rome was a vast, heterogeneous empire stretching from one end of the known world to the other. It had many tongues, races, and traditions. The problem was how to weld this varied mass into a self-conscious unity. There was no unifying force like that of a common religion. But none of the national religions could conceivably have become universal. Caesar worship could. It was the one common act and belief which turned the entire empire into a unity. To refuse to burn the pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Now listen, this is critical. To refuse to burn the pinch of incense and, and to say, Caesar is Lord, was not an act of irreligion. It was an act of a political disloyalty. That is why, that is why the Romans dealt with, this, with utmost severity with the man who would not say Caesar is Lord. And no Christian could give the title Lord to any other than Jesus Christ. This was the center, this was the center of his creed. Now, you need to understand this to get the connection with the present that we live in. Here, listen to what I'm saying. The Romans did not think they were involved in some kind of religious persecution against Christians. The Roman state did not say, we just don't like Christianity as a belief system. We've got to get rid of it. No Romans were thinking that, at least not that we see recorded. They might have said it was a pernicious belief, but they weren't persecuting people ju just because they had that belief system. Under the direction of Domitian, the state was simply punishing those people who refused to comply, people who refused to comply with good public order. They weren't trying to stamp out a religion. They were trying to stamp out political dissent. They weren't punishing them for a belief. They were punishing them for a behavior that was deemed dangerous to the social well-being of the empire. They were punishing those Christians for a set of behaviors that were deemed dangerous to the well-being of the empire. And because those re believers refused to compromise their loyalty to Jesus Christ, the Roman state brought the full and aggressive legal weight of the empire 
against the Christian community, and that resulted in them listening, listen, losing their property and their ability to earn a living, losing their liberty, and ultimately losing their lives. Property, liberties, and lives. And that's when Jesus grants John this revelation. And this short passage is, is a word for us just as much as it was a word for them. Because while Christians in the secular West today are not losing their lives for the gospel, we are at the beginning of where the, that church in 95 AD found itself, a place where the state and society see faithful followers of Jesus Christ as a menace to the well-being of society and the cohesion of the state. And if you don't think that's the case, you haven't been paying attention to the vitriol that has been directed towards those who are trying to protect the religious liberty of traditional Christians. Now, I was not going to mention this this morning, but I think I need to mention this. Um, and so, uh, no, no, no telling what could happen. It's not in my notes. So I have to be very careful. First of all, I want you, you need to know that at Christ Church, uh, we, are, we are a welcoming community. We welcome everybody who is on their journey towards God. We don't have a filter at the door. We do have Jesus as bouncer. <laughs> but we don't have a filter. And so this is a welcoming and, welcoming and faithful together intention. We are a welcoming community, but we are deeply faithful to the gospel, to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. We, we do not want to see any segment of our society marginalized, persecuted, or discriminated against, let alone us, but anybody. So I went and I read, uh, because of the uproar in Georgia this past week about an act, and I can't remember the legislation number, but I actually went and I read the legislation. Nobody else seems to have done this. But I went to the source, I went to Georgia's uh, state government website and read the legislation, and the legislation that was introduced that created this uproar, and you've seen it in the news, and that their gov governor, Governor Deal, just vetoed, here's what it provided for. It provided for three things. Listen to what it provided for. Okay, these are the facts. A, it provided that no minister shall be compelled to perform a religious ceremony, weddings in particular, against their conscience. That's, that's, now, that's what... Listen, that's what Coca-Cola and Time Warner Cable and the NFL and Apple and Disney think is so wicked. Second thing it provided for is that no, no church is compelled to rent its space or to offer its meeting place for activities that are not consistent with its beliefs. And it's not just about churches, but it's about mosques, synagogues, etc. That's what those corporations went nuts about. That's what the New York Times burst into flames over. And the third thing it, it made provision for is that no Christian institution, religious institution, shall be compelled to hire people who disagree with their core tenets of faith. Now, that's all, that's, that's all that legislation said. It wasn't about making cakes or taking pictures. It was about specific acts of worship and how we teach the Scriptures. And that was vetoed because of an uproar and a, a hue and a cry that went up from corporate America. Because that is now, listen, those simple things that seem to us so benign are seen as a menace 
to the good order of the state and to society. Where are you at, church? You're at the beginning of 95 A.D. When the church is being tempted and coerced to compromise its loyalty to Jesus, when the church is, when Christians are being marginalized and reviled, when Christians are losing property, liberty, and in some places, even today, around the world, even their lives, Jesus says this in the passage we just read. Three things, and I'm going to hit these very quickly, and then we'll close. He says, remember who I am, remember who you are, and remember what the future holds. Look at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Listen to what is being said to that church in 95 AD, losing property, liberty, and life, Jesus says, remember who I am. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Christian, hear me, remember that Christ is risen and the greatest terror you and I can ever face. It's a terror that the state may wield, but it is a terror that is greater than the state itself. It's a terror greater than society can wield. It is the terror of death, and Jesus has conquered that terror. The greatest terror that you and I will ever face is the terror of death. And Jesus has beat it. Remember who he is. He has conquered death. He's defeated death. And even more, no matter what it looks like right this very minute, 95 AD, 2016, I don't care when it is, Jesus, the scriptures, John is telling the churches from Jesus, listen to this. He is the ruler of kings on earth. No matter what it looks like right now, Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth right this very minute. That's what he was saying to that church. That church says, well, it doesn't look like it. And maybe we feel the same way. But he is the ruler. So many of us feel the darkness because we've lost sight of who really is in control of the world. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. And he keeps reminding those seemingly unstoppable empires and governments and violent men of this truth. I recently watched a documentary about a young Polish priest, uh, Father Jerzy Popkiewuszko. I have longed to say that here. <laughs> and that is pretty close. Jerzy Popkiewuszko. Um, but I read this, this wonderful biography of this man. Watch this documentary, actually. In the early 1980s, the young pastor delivered the dynamic passages, pa uh, messages that stirred the Polish people eventually to overthrow their communist oppressors. He was, he was not a a big, hearty fellow. He was a pale, gaunt young man. He didn't speak with fire. He didn't speak with eloquence. I've heard his recordings of his sermons, and they are almost a monotone. But when he held his monthly mass for the homeland dedicated to the victims of communist persecution, tens of thousands, and I've seen, you've got to see this, uh, you've got to go and look online, go to YouTube and look up Yerzhe Popkiewuszko. But outside of the church where he served, <laughs> yeah, if you can spell it, um, 
I'll, I'll, give you a, uh, I'll give you a link. But if you look at the ch- outside, there are tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands. That's not an exaggeration of people gathered outside the church where he is standing on a balcony and loudspeakers are, are, are broadcasting his sermons, listening. He is calling Christians in those sermons to overcome evil with good. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, uh, uh, Paul says in the book of Romans. So a Christian, Yerzy Popkiewuszko said, Father Yerzy said, a Christian must be a sign of contradiction in the world, contradicting all kinds of evil. He, he, he said, in the darkness of communism, we must let our light shine so that through our deeds, people can see the Father who is in heaven. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? In the winter of 1980, martial law was declared in Poland. I remember seeing this on the news. Tanks and troops clogged the streets, streets until the entire country was just one vast prison. And the Polish people despised those troops. But Jerzy Popkiewuszko was not going to be overcome by evil. He was going to go overcome evil with good. And so on Christmas Eve of that year, he baked, I don't know, and he probably got everybody he knew to bake cookies. They baked all kinds of cookies, delicious Polish pastries. And they went out into the streets of Warsaw and the other towns, and they went to those troops, and they gave Christmas cookies to the troops. In 1984, the government decided to silence this troublemaking priest. And so the secret police whisked him away in the middle of the night. But the authorities had seriously miscalculated. Churches across Poland gathered to pray for Jerzy. Steel workers demanded his release and they threatened a national strike. Yes, Lech Walesa was a part of that. 50,000 people, 50,000 people gathered at his church to hear a recording of his last sermon. And then Yerzy's body was found in the Vistula River, and the nation erupted in grief. He had been brutally tortured. His eyes had been cut out, his tongue had been cut out, and all of his bones had been smashed with a sledgehammer. But he had taught his people well. After his funeral, hundreds of thousands of Poles took to the streets and they walked in silent procession past the headquarters of the secret police carrying signs and banners that said, we forgive. And the impact, and the impact of that reality The impact of the fact that they were living like Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. The communist dictatorship could not stand. And in 1984, communism crumbled in Poland because of one gaunt, quiet priest who believed that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth and wouldn't stop living like it. Remember who he is. And remember who you are. The scripture says here, To him who loves us and who freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Remember who you are. It says, to him who loves us. Brothers and sisters, you are loved by Jesus. Jesus does love you. Regardless of who hates you for your faith, 
the God of the universe loves you. If God loves me, if the most important entity in reality loves me, then everything else will be okay. Jesus loves you. Yes, you and I are going to be, get used to it. It's just, it's what normally happens to Christians that only has only happened for the last 2,000 years. You're going to be scorned, reviled, and hated more and more by the world. Jesus told you that. This isn't news for us. But we can stand that because you are loved by Jesus who gave himself for you and freed you by his blood. What more could we ask for? And the reason why I think perhaps that doesn't matter as much as it should to us is because we are so distracted we don't spend the time with the one who loves us. Oh, this morning when we come to the table, don't you see what this says? He says, I mean, we hear it every Sunday. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. What more love can anyone show? He loves you. And more than that, he has made us a kingdom. Do you know what that means? It means, listen, I am so tired of hearing this, and I don't, you, you never hear it from me or Father Keith or from anyone else in this pulpit, but I hear this phrase, we've got to take back America. No, we don't, because it's not ours. <laughs> we belong to another kingdom. You are, he made you a kingdom. You belong to the kingdom that is breaking in now, the ultimate reality that is where God's rule and reign will be forever and ever and ever, I don't care what's going on now. I don't care how long the United States of America lasts. It's temporary. It's temporary. You belong to a kingdom, and he has made you priest to his God. You're important in the kingdom. He reminded, John reminded, those Roman Christians that they weren't primarily Romans. They were citizens of another kingdom. And our role, like theirs, is to live that kingdom, just like Yerushay Papkiwushko, live that kingdom right now in this world. Finally, remember what the future holds. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now listen, I don't think it's just talking about, because I don't think a lot of those people were alive in 95 A.D. who had pierced Jesus in 33 A.D., I think, I think this is a reference to those who pierce his body, the church. Those who brutalize the church. Because we are Christ's body on earth. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him wail. Even so, amen. This is good news. Because it reminds us what the future holds. The future holds this. Christ will come again in glorious victory. He is coming again in glory. Now you say, well, that just seems very unlikely. <laughs> it's no less unlikely and no more unlikely than the resurrection. <laughs> For a living man to come back, okay, that's easy. For a dead man to rise from the grave, that's not so easy. He is coming again in glorious victory. You will be vindicated Every eye will see him. Evil will finally be judged and destroyed forever. Don't forget what the future holds. And so that's why James can write in James chapter 1, because Christ is risen, count it all joy 
brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, when this stuff is going on, count it all joy. We're resurrection people. We are to rejoice even in the midst of this, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We are a people of joy. Cast off your heaviness. Put on a garment of praise. A little while later in Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, and he says this, and I would say this to us. I don't know that if it's a word directly to us in its entirety, but it certainly is in in portions of it. He says, listen, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do not be afraid. Hang on, church. Do not be downcast. When that spirit of oppression comes, you rebuke it in the name of Jesus and say, Christ is risen, truly risen. Or like they were going to say, we got way ahead of the Greeks this year, way ahead of the Eastern Orthodox, but they're going to be saying in a couple of weeks, Christos aneste, atelos aneste, Christ is risen, truly risen. Don't be downcast. But also don't compromise. It's going to be so hard not to. But church, don't compromise. Don't despair. Don't give in. Remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. He is risen, truly risen. You have the victory. You are a kingdom of priests. Christ is alive and coming soon. We have so much to rejoice in. Do not forget that. And let's rebuke the darkness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.